Hello, and welcome to the Ragman's Harbor, the official podcast of the Planet OC Exchange Program, a podcast where we look at Eswav from our not-so-unique point of view, that of non-Anglo, a song of ice and fire enthusiasts, and share our real-world parallels and whatnot with you all, in English, because it is our common language. This is our first episode, so before we head into our first fun, um, to be confirmed, real-life parallel, we want to share that we want to share with you today, we should introduce the podcast, probably. First of all, as you might have noticed already, English is not our first language, but it is our common language. Therefore, it is the one that we use here. It's also the original language of the books and the shows that we are talking about, so it only makes sense it is the language we've been using through the many years we've been connecting with the community and making friends around the world. We ask native speakers to be kind enough to not point out our very perfectible grammar. And please, 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 we really ask you that unless you really can't understand what we are saying, please don't mention our accents. We know we have accents. It's okay. We, we know it. But we would really very much rather that you focus on what we are saying and comment on that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And what we're interested is in sharing with you the elements of real life that ASWAF makes us think about that are not the most commonly discussed. They're probably not what George uh, based his work on, but they're real. And they're references that some of us have, uh, but not all. And we think it's cool to sh share that with everyone. What's more, even if George didn't directly base ASWAF on these things, they tell us something about the world and the human condition. So we wanted to share it with more people. After all, if it wasn't for the real life stuff that has been and been been discussed for over the years, our community wouldn't be what it is, and we personally wouldn't be active in it. The Winter Winter are the friends we made along the way, after all, and we had the ongoing discussions of real life that we've been having, started by one thing or another in the books. Um, so you may be wondering, but who are we? <laughs> I am Virginie, a French woman whose pronouns are she, her in English currently residing in France after many a year abroad. At the university, I studied what may appear like a very varied array of subjects, except to me, it all ties up nicely. Let's say it allows me to speak and read different languages and also know quite a lot about the literature and history of quite a lot of countries I'd never encountered in my very France-centered secondary education. And that is how I can hold my co-host accountable when they don't praise the Danes enough. <coughs> yes. Um, and to also be qualified and experienced in the varied fields of linguistics and interculturality. Not to mention my work and life experiences. And yes, I have lived in many types of abroads, like different countries. Anyway, who is my co-host? Yes, I'm Lo, uh, a Swedish gender queer person whose pronouns are they, them in English. I reside sort of in the middle of Sweden, but my family is from the north and belongs to the ethnic minority group Tornadalians. At university, I studied sociology and gender studies, so I've read 
a fair bit of critical theory, and I'm usually happy to discuss the different ways society sucks for marginalized groups. I started my blog, loadalinks.wordpress.com, because I wanted to apply that critical theory that I knew to ASWAF and other fiction I like. And my day job is being a project leader at a Swedish nonprofit that works with sexual and reproductive health and rights. Neither of us is a historian, but we are both very interested in history and we like to do research. So we're endeavoring to bring to you in English interesting info from non-English language sources. Because there's a whole world of research happening in other languages, and it's really cool to be able to share. We have more experience, personal or else, with sociology, social linguistics, gender studies, development, migration, sex education, indigenous arts and rights movements, climate change, walking back through centuries just when going shopping, with the right kind of imagination at least, and being at least bilingual. We let you guess who is what here. So you're probably going to get plenty of influences from our other interests and experiences in this podcast too, not just history. Yeah, but history is a compulsory subject in both our countries and possibly in all of Europe and many other countries in the world. So it's fair to say that most people have a notion of their own country's history, but not necessarily as much of other countries. Yeah, so in France... We mostly learn of French history, you know, not just that, but mostly, like say, for instance, English history, what do I know of it? Mostly when we're at war with them, you know? Um, <laughs> and so because we are France, we quite like to think of us as lettered people. So we do study a lot of literature, except we're French. So we study a lot of French literature, because incredible, um, we do have a lot of writers and playwrights. So. Never in my life that I can remember of in my what would be literature classes, what in English would be English class, but in French it's just French class, you know. Um, I've never studied Shakespeare because why on earth would I? I did do some little Shakespeare here and there in my English classes, but English is a foreign language at school. So we are technically learning English. So how could I possibly be studying uh, Shakespeare play in a language I don't speak, especially Shakespeare. I don't know. That doesn't work, right? But you told me it's different in Sweden. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to Shakespeare, I did read Shakespeare in high school or secondary school, whatever term you want to use in mm. English class. Uh, because I think, yeah, we we got a bit more advanced. I mean, we read like uh, Wuthering Heights as well in English. And I think Sweden has this idea that we don't really matter too much. Uh, so we did do Swedish history and Swedish literature. But the older you got, the more it was like European history, European literature. Uh, and we did talk about like world history as well a bit, but it was still quite Eurocentric. And, you know, even if it was Eurocentric, it of course didn't cover any indigenous people in Europe or mm -hmm. minority groups in Europe uh, because why would you do that except maybe when talking about World War II and people being killed there oh. uh, but otherwise no hmm. but still a, a bit global stuff some global stuff well uh, you know the history of France being what the history of France is you can say that I did study about global history, mostly because the French Empire was quite global. 
<clears throat> so not necessarily the most unbiased kind of um, view on things. But yeah, that was there. So no, we are extremely full of, of ourselves in this country. So totally opposite <laughs> from the Swedish way. That's interesting. Like, that's really cool because, I mean, we are both European, but we are from very different countries, right? And uh, so that yeah. also brings something to this project we have, I think. Yeah. Um, something I really wanted to mention also about how different our countries are is that, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, walking to shopping and seeing history in the walls you're walking through, I mean, you're walking past in the cities, like the layout of the city or the streets and whatnot that date back to the Middle Ages, if not before. But, um, you know, we used to have a king and you guys still have one. Please tell me. What does it feel like? <laughs> it feels like, why do we still have a king? <laughs> the only use I can possibly see with the royal family is that they have foundations that my nonprofit sometimes applies for money from. Not that we get that, but, you know, anyway. They, it's like the, this princess's foundation for disabled kids. Yay, we're going to apply for money from it, and that's about it with the usefulness of it oh well that's uh great <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so um as i'm sure you're aware france we had this little thing called the revolution uh at least the one that's big and most famous because of course we had more we are france um but you do love your revolutions yeah, we do with a passion. So, um, yeah, a few people were beheaded and a lot of them were quite noble or whatnot. So French nobility definitely is nothing like Swedish nobility or even like British nobility or my favorite nobility of them all, the Danes. Um, <laughs> no, but for real, like they're cool. Anyway, this is now a Virginie will tell you all about what is amazing in Denmark podcast. Um, but not yet. Not yet. Oh shit. I was trying. Um so we yeah, no, like I knew these things existed because come on, I studied history and I loved history, right? As a child and growing up. But we don't have a local noble or something. I mean there there was one until 250 years ago, but then he probably got beheaded or something. And the one replaced this person or their family. So like wow, this is so fancy. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know much about Swedish nobility. Like, they exist, and they have their coat of arms, and they have a house in Stockholm called Riddarhuset, where they hang out, uh, I think. It's like kind of like the House of Lords in the UK, but they don't have any power. Um, but, I mean, we, coat of arms is a thing that we have everywhere. Like, every municipality, every region, everything has their coat of arms. My favorite one is uh, the one from Avacalix, which I've shared multiple times on social media. It's a black bear with a very visible erection holding a golden axe. Um, I'm very, um, I'm quite a unhappy that I don't have that I don't have any family that actually lives <laughs> there. Um, I just travel for it sometimes. Oh, that's cool. I don't have a favorite coat of arm. No, I do. Because uh, cities also have coat of arms, like I think all of them could be wrong. Um, yeah. And the one of Paris is really cool because I don't know, there's a boat on it. I like boats. Um, 
One day, maybe, I'll tell you more about it. I'll find a reason why. No one has an erection, so, so it kind of sucks, I guess. Mm. But, you know, we try our best. <sighs> but yeah, I mean, speaking of history, we talked about how if you walk through town, you see you see history everywhere. And like where I got my master's degree at Uppsala University, it's the oldest university in Scandinavia, one of the oldest in Europe. It was founded in 1477. So, like, yeah. you're aware of history in a lot of ways. And one of the places I'm going to mention later when we talk historical parallel stuff, it's Stortoniet in Stockholm, That it's which literally means the big square. Um, <laughs> because why come up with some fun name for things? Uh, anyway, that's still around. It has a lovely Christmas market every year. You can go there and buy, like, mulled wine and stuff. But... Uh, Back in the day, people were executed there. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, I studied at La Sorbonne, not necessarily in the main building, but when I did study in the main building, it's also the oldest university in France. Yeah. I can't remember when it dates back to, because, you know, <laughs> 1360, I don't know. It's a bit before Uppsala, but it's like not ridiculously too early before that. I don't know. And the main building has the one of the oldest observatories in Europe. It's really cool. It's still there. Um, but right next to La Sorbonne, like just the cup, the, the 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 block before it, when you go up the boulevard, is mm -hmm. the bath, the Roman bath of Paris that were built mm. around around the year three hundred. So, yeah, I did walk past every single day going to school a building that is 1700s year old. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like just literally, it's there. That, yeah. And you can go visit it if you want. Um, and part of it is actually accessible from the Middle Ages Museum that is also right there. And it's lovely. Like, I absolutely love it. But it's also a very normal part of the city of Paris. And yeah. there is so much more to be said. And like, I just love showing foreigners, especially non-Europeans, because Europeans are not impressed by these things. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, yeah, this is really interesting. But you're not impressed, right? Now, take someone from, I don't know, out there in New Zealand, like I did a few weeks ago. And they're like, did you say 1700 years? I'm like, yeah. And I let that sink in. I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's not like places like New Zealand doesn't have a long history. It's just that it's not quite the same because colonialism. Well, and actually, in the case of Aotearoa, the, the Maori people seem to only have arrived there in 1200. So it's okay. quite a recent settlement anyway. But um, I mean, to me, a European, it's such a recent settlement. <laughs> Babies. <Yeah. laughs> but, um, but they have an amazing culture. And that is probably what matters most. Not how long you've been on the land. But to continue on, uh, we've rambled a bit about history and what we're going to do on this podcast. And as we mentioned, we're from different countries in Europe. But we, we're going to have other people on as well. Uh, and our, our goal is to have A4 fans from different parts of the world 
who specifically come from p- countries where you don't speak English as your <laughs> first language, because we want to highlight voices and perspective from non-Anglo parts of the fandom. And like, we'll try, but we can just do that ourselves. Um, we would be a bit Eurocentric, even if we try to not be Eurocentric. Uh so we have a list of people we're going to ask to guest on the podcast. But if you're a non-Anglo A2 fan, feel free to reach out. Yeah, please. That would be absolutely amazing. We want that. Um, obviously, especially if you're Danish, there will be a call out for you later on. Um, but no, for <laughs> real. Even if you're French or Swedish, like we are not close to our own people. We just... We want to meet more people too, like not just necessarily ourselves. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're my friend and I don't need to meet you, but I want other people around the world to hear you. And that's different. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. 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 This should be really exciting. Please. We are excited. Be excited with us. Please, please, please. (laughs) Okay. So uh, to get into the thing so like we mentioned one of the things our main thing with this podcast is that we're looking at different parallels to our world when it comes to ASWAF and we thought we'd start off light and breezy with the red wedding easy so (laughs) we're gonna start by going back in history for Swedish history to something that's always reminded me of the red wedding which is Stockholm's Blåbad, or Stockholm Bloodbath. Uh, as you can tell, very light and breezy event. Oh, yes, definitely. So I'm going to start by giving some background to the event, uh, and then we can get into the event itself. So at the time, uh, Sweden was part of the so-called Kalmar Union, Cal- the this is going to be a thing on the podcast because I'm mixing Swedish and English and it's so confusing <laughs> for my brain. Yeah, don't worry, me too. Uh... We were part of Kalmar Unionen, the Kalmar Union, which was a union between the kingdoms of Norway, Sweden and Denmark. But because of the way borders were drawn then, remember, borders are fake, um, this meant it also included the current day Finland, Greenland, the Faroe Islands, Orkney Islands and Shetland Islands. But not Sotmi, uh, because we hadn't colonized that yet. Uh, and for those who don't know, Sotmi is the part, is the land of the indigenous Sami people, consisting of land in the northern parts of what is now Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. Anyway, the different parts of the Kalmar Union had varying degrees of autonomy, but the union was ruled by Denmark. And many people in Sweden disliked the Danish rule, both peasants who didn't like taxes and nobles who were displeased with what they called Danish oppression. And in the early 1500s, the influential Stubre family started gathering people around them with the goal of eventually making Sweden independent. The leader of the Stubre party was Sten Sture the Younger, who was the current regent of Sweden, whose position essentially meant ruling the land when the king was not present. Interestingly enough, uh, besides nobles, the Sture party also consisted of an alliance of peasants, miners and merchants. So it was like a quite a broad alliance. In 1515, a man called Gustav Trolle had been named Archbishop of Sweden by the Pope. 
The Pope had also given him the right to keep 400 soldiers of his own to protect his fortress, Stacket. Trolle was loyal to the Danes, and therefore someone the Stude party opposed. In 1517, Sten Stude decided to take Stacket from Trolle and raise it to the ground, because Trolle had failed to swear fealty to the regent and the council of the realm. Sten Stude also decided to depose Trolle as an archbishop against the protests of the Pope. And you know... Going against the Pope is a great idea. Yes. Uh, eventually, the Danish king, uh, Christian II, had to intervene. The Danish and Swedish forces first fought a battle outside Blandkirke, which the Swedish troops won. The Danes were forced to retreat. After that, Christian II suggested he'd come to Stockholm to treat with the Stuart party, but would only do so if they agreed to hand over some hostages to guarantee safe passage. A group of noble hostages, including Gustav Vasa, will become relevant later, uh, was handed over. But the Danes then decided to just kind of kidnap them and fuck off uh, and <laughs> make their way back to Denmark. <laughs> um, <laughs> great way to honor diplomatic channels, etc. Oh, yes. Um, That's how you do it. Yeah. And back in Denmark, they rounded up more forces, including mercenaries, uh, and eventually they returned to Sweden. The Danish and uh, Swedish troops fought a battle on the ice of Åsudden, close to modern-day Ulrusehamn. Quite early on in the battle, Sten Sture the Younger was wounded, and his forces tried to get him back to Stockholm via sledge, because winter, uh, but he died on the way. And after this victory, Christian managed to take control of more or less all of Sweden, except Stockholm. The defense of Stockholm was at the time uh, in the hands of Stensturer's widow, Kristina Julenstjärna, who was now also the regent of the country, and also pregnant at this time. So, you know, she had a lot going on. First, she refused to surrender the city, but eventually the other defenders of the city elected to surrender after they had been promised, am promised amnesty by Christian II. With that promise, many of those who had previously fought against the Danish decided to, to, to attend the coronation feast of Christian II. So, uh, if we take a moment to stop here, what ASWAF parallels can we see so far? Well, there's the whole fighting for independence part, like yeah. trying to get it out of a union of many kingdoms. Uh, kind of like you have the different kingdoms of Westeros being ruled by one king. Uh, and like Sweden is the northern part of this union uh, and we're trying to get out, you know, uh, king in the north vibes. <laughs> uh, but I think Rob is cooler than Sten Stöder. Um And we do have the young leader dying, uh, albeit in battle here and not at the treacherous event that I'm going to cover later. But, you know, still, uh, what do you think? Well, you know what I think. I think, obviously, that um, you should just have stuck with Denmark because, obviously, they're great. And I just want to throw in that the Kalmar Union would not even... Oh, my God, how did I pronounce that? Okay, whatever. So it would not even be a thing if it were not for this really amazing queen of Denmark that I really would love a Danish person to come and chat about, um, Margrethe, because... You know, if we want to talk a swath parallel here, have you seen Egon the First and his sisters? Well, she was all three of them in one. Beat that word. Well, did she had dragons? She didn't need dragons. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> so yeah, 
I think this is terrible. Like, it's betraying her legacy. But anyway, that's just me. And please proceed to the part where people get butchered because that's fun. No, it is not. Well, I want to say that I do appreciate <laughs> Margrethe. I don't want to share on her legacy. Although I must point out that her dad, Valdemar Atterdag, sucked. And maybe we'll get to that one day. Yeah. Uh, but okay, event, butchering, people Yay! dying. So we have the coronation feast of Christian II. And according to all the records, the feast was a jolly affair where the king treated his guests very kindly. <laughs> uh, and that, But that would change. The, the feast was a three-day three day event, and on the third day, November 7th, 1520, so also, just remember, November, dark, bad vibes, mm. cold, uh, November in Sweden, not super fun. Uh, but on this third day, the gates to Stockholm Castle were suddenly and resolutely closed, with all the guests inside. The king took his place on the throne and called forward Archbishop Trolle, who produced a long list of names of people who had attacked him and seized his fortress and were as such guilty of heresy because they had committed a crime against the church. Uh, and that was against canon law uh, and meant the king could not pardon them because God law. Um, so those who were accused were arrested, given very brief trials, and the next day the bloodbath would begin. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure our lawyer friends have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, <laughs> our lawyers that are our lawyers, you know. Um, oh, yes, these ones. Yes. So on Stortoriet, the Great Square, uh, the executions would begin. The nobles were beheaded by the sword uh, and those less nobles were hanged, which it's also a thing that happens in Ace Wolf, I think, that like people of different class get different types of executions. Yes, in France. Um and then, unfortunately, some people were also drawn and quartered. Uh, I should also add that, again, this is November. It's also raining during this entire execution thing. So, like, bloodbath is very literal. The blood was, like, flowing down the square. Uh, very fun. <laughs> and when the nobles had been dealt with, the headsmen went into the city to find other people who might have been sympathetic to the student party. For instance, one barber by the name Lambrecht Bordschärare is said to have been busy shaving a client when soldiers came in to drag him off to the execution spot. And there was another na man na named Lasse Hess who said to be dragged off because he started crying when witnessing the bloodbath. <laughs> so obviously, you know, sympathizer. And in total, at least 82 people were executed, maybe more. And one fun thing is that one of the sources that I read claimed that when it came to the merchants and artisans being killed, uh, most were put forth by this German merchant called Gorius Holste. Why did I pronounce that like he was Norwegian? I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, this dude, he was loyal to the Danish king and would later be chosen as a major, 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 uh, as a major of <laughs> Stockholm by Christian II. And it's probable that he put forth the names of people he personally wanted to be killed. There was like his rivals or something. And um, the Danes went along with it, partially because they saw the Germans as a key to getting more influence over trade in the Baltic Sea. And that's like a whole thing that's going on beneath the surface of this whole thing is like trade in the Baltic Sea and getting along with Germans or not and like stuff that we're not going to get into. 
Um, but the trade thing influenced this war in a lot of ways. And also me saying German is a simplification because obviously Germany didn't exist as a country at the time. But I'm not sure what part of now Germany this dude was from because the source just said German. Um, so yeah, after the executions, the bodies were looted, being left rot in the square for several days. Super fun. Uh, eventually they were moved to the outskirts of the city, which, which is the part that's now called Södermalm, which is where I grew up. <laughs> yes. Um, and they were moved to Södermalm and burned. Uh, it's said that the body of Sten Sture the Younger, who had been killed like half a year before, that body was dug up and brought to the pyre to also be burned because another desecration was apparently deemed necessary. <laughs> And after this, Christian left Stockholm to return to Denmark, uh, and the executions continued as he went along. He went on this like royal tour through Sweden and killed people on the way, um, people who he saw as enemies. I could not find a source that said how many people were killed, uh, but I'm guessing a lot. Mm. Uh, so in total, 82 people were killed in the Stockholm bloodbath, and then a bunch more people afterwards. And after this event, Christian II was known as Christian Turan, meaning Christian the Tyrant in Sweden. So this is like the big thing when it comes to red wedding parallels. People were promised amnesty, like you're not going to get killed, it's going to be fun, we're going to have a fun feast. They were feasting to get in your castle and killed. I mean, here they weren't killed at the feast directly, but like they've been promised amnesty, which is similar to guest right, I think. Uh, and I mean, if they hadn't been promised amnesty, they wouldn't have dared come to the feast. Uh, and because they were at the feast, they were arrested and then killed. And also the disrespect shown towards the bodies and the desecration of Stian Sture's body really reminds me of what is done to Rob and Kat's bodies after the Red Wedding with the whole wolf head thing mm -hmm. and throwing Kat naked in the river. And then... Another interesting parallel regarding this is the people killed. Uh, before I, I read up on this, I don't think I knew about the people killed as Christian made his back, way back to Denmark. Because you only really hear about the people killed in Stockholm, because it's, killed, it's called the Stockholm bloodbath after all. <laughs> but a lot more people were killed. And that kind of reminds me of Tywin's bullshit line of, explain to me why it's more noble to kill 10, kill 1,000 men at the in battle than a dozen at dinner. Which is, of course, bullshit, because they did kill thousands of people outside in the camps during the Red Wedding, but those aren't remembered in the same way. And, yeah, that kind of reminded me of this. Oh, and also that merchant dude naming competitors as traitors totally feels like something various or little finger would do. And, yeah. I mean, good on him, I guess? Uh, yeah. Oh, well. We'll see. I have one like that, kind of. So, yeah, that that, that was my ace of thoughts about uh, the main event of the uh, Stockholm bloodbath. Do you have anything to add? Uh, it's quite gory. Um, I'm supposed to be pro-Dane here, but I find it hard, personally. <laughs> However, what I can say, very pro-Dane, like, come on, the drama, blood literally flowing down the roads, like, must have been quite the side if you're into blood flowing down the road so well done Denmark I suppose maybe very dramatic yeah 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 drama I like drama yeah mm. 
So I wanted to say something about the aftermath too, uh, because I think that also plays into like the Ace Four parallels to this. So basically, people were kind of pissed off about this whole event, uh, not just about so many noble people dying, but especially by the brutality of everything of it. And this became excellent propaganda fodder for the anti-unionists who eventually united behind Gustav Vasa. Remember, one of the dudes who'd been kidnapped and brought back to Denmark. And he'd been imprisoned in Denmark during part of the war, but then he managed to escape. He went to Lübeck uh, for some reason and then back to Sweden after that. It's a whole thing. He he, He had like an adventure story event during the war. But anyway, he went back to Sweden. Uh, and his dad had been one of the people killed during the bloodbath, but he hadn't been in Stockholm at the time, so he hadn't been killed. And in 1521, he was elected as a regent by a so-called herredag in Vadstena. And a herredag is uh, a gathering consisting, consisting of nobles, clergy, merchants and peasants. And it was basically a proto-parliament kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and... Anyway, he was elected as regent at this, and then he eventually managed to win against the Danes, in large part because he managed to get uh, support from the peasants of the country. And he became king of an independent Sweden in 1523. So that's 500 years ago today, and some people are like, hey, yay, we're celebrating the birth of our country this year, and I'm like, stop being stupid. (laughs) Um, Anyway, this is... Uh, Him becoming king is by many considered the foundation of the modern Sweden. And I just want to be clear, Gustav Vasa was a shitty person in a lot of ways. Uh, I've seen him described as Machiavellian. So while Swedish history books have for a long time described him as a hero, etc. It wasn't all that great. But it did kick out the Danes and bring an end to the Kalmar Union. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, I should probably also mention that... He is a very large reason for Sweden becoming Protestant. Uh, Sweden became Protestant as he was king, uh, partly because he wasn't a big fan of the Catholic Church, everything everything that gone on. And he was like, I want all the power and none of the power for the church, thank you. And also he was like, hey, if if we kick out the Catholic Church, then I can like take all the treasures from the churches. And that's good because I need money because I kind of have a debt to Lübeck after they helped me with the war. Uh, so yeah, he raided all the churches and uh, got all the money. So yeah, that was a thing as well. <laughs> wow, I didn't remember that. That's really, oh, come on, that's amazing. Sweden, so fashion forward. We did that during the revolution. That's like 300 yeah. years later. <laughs> Exactly. He, a modern man, Gustav Vasa. <laughs> Very practical. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> also, fun fact, I don't not know I don't know if this is gonna get picked up on the recording, but Totik is meowing behind me at the moment. Oh I can't hear her. Oh, I'm oh that's too bad. Aww. Yes, so uh, the consequences of Stockholm Bloodbath to me is very similar to the consequences of the Red Wedding. Because turns out sometimes it's not helpful to do the harsh and brutal thing. Like Christian Tirano thought that, hey, I'm going to show these Swedes, don't come at me. And, they, and we were like, no, fuck you. And that's kind of what happened. 
in Acewolf 2, uh, the Lannisters and the Freys and everyone was like, we're going to push down the north. They're not going to rebel anymore. And why Man- Manderly was, hey, was like, hey, let me show you this pie I got. Um, you know, like, there, it, it's not helping. Um, and, like, our our friends at the Learned Hands podcast has talked about this a lot. It's not good to have people hate you if you're a ruler. Like, if you if you ask someone like Machiavelli, he might say that it's a good strategy to have them fear you, but he's also very clear, you don't want to be hated. That's bad. And we see the consequences of this in uh, Acewolf, in the Dance of the Dance with Dragons. People are pissed off and just waiting for an opportunity to get back at the perpetrators of the Red Wedding. And I mean, I'm pretty sure we're going to end up with an independent North by the end of the story, just as we ended up with an independent Sweden. Well, yeah, I'm absolutely sure of it. I mean, Sweden is independent, but I'm, <laughs> yeah, I believe in the independent North in Aswav. Yes. Not just because Sweden, but because because that's how it's written. Um, okay, well, uh, I don't think I have questions. I'm really happy you shared all this because... Okay, I did study Scandinavian studies and our history classes were all of the north of Europe because, as Lou mentioned, the north of Europe at various stages is way more than just Scandinavia, right? And so I I did know about this. I didn't remember all the details and I'm like, yeah, that was bad. Like, (laughs) bad. (laughs) Um, My not so... I don't know. I don't want to sound too much like Machiavelli, but just... Don't do that. Th- that is my yeah. extremely deep and um, profound advice. Don't, don't. Just don't. It's, it's bad. It's not going to go down well. Seriously. <laughs> okay. Anything you want to add? No. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I'm glad I could find some stuff about peasants doing stuff yeah. that made me happy. Because they're often not mentioned in history. But they mattered a lot here. Yes. And I'm actually really happy for my part, like I can say that quickly already, that one historian in particular has been doing tons and tons of research, not on the big people, but on the smaller people, if you want. And that's why I have so much absolutely awful things to say. But um, yeah, they have to be said, I presume. But um, yeah, please, if you're a historian, research the small things, the, the, the people who don't supposedly matter, but they're like most of people in the world, you know. And that's so interesting. Uh, so, maybe I should move on. We, we should move to France. Are we ready? Yes. Okay, so um, for my story, we need a bit of background. So before we get to the year of our Lord, 17, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> wrong we need a bit of background so before we go to the lead no i can't even keep a straight face after what i said oh yeah so we go back to before the year of our lord see still not it can i say 15 do you think i can say 15 one five fifteen one five i can one five seven two that's where the 17 came from um okay so so we're now going to France, and we need background before we can get to the year of our Lord, 1572, on the St. 
Bartholomew, I'm trying my best to say it in English, day. We, we need to fast, no, no, to back forward, whatever. Um, so, the 1500s are quite famous for one little, little thing, not much. Protestantism is becoming a thing in the first half of the century. So, uh, if you don't know what that means, it means that basically some reformers of the Catholic Church succeed not in reforming the Catholic Church, but in not being burnt at the stake for heresy. And they do convert... Yeah, I know, a big one. And they convert people to their own version of Christianity. The most famous of these people is Martin Luther, uh, in, Germ in what is now Germany, but the most successful one in France at the time is Jean Calvin, who is French, and had to literally, and I'm not joking, run from roof to roof for his life to exit Paris once, and wisely made his seat in Geneva, now in Switzerland, so Calvin, usually is pronounced Calvin because, you know, we, you know the story will tell you why. It didn't work too well. Uh, in France, eventually. The, um, I'm blanking. So yeah, he made his seat in Geneva, really attached to this city um, in memories to this day. And now to our actual background. One very important protestant for our story is the Queen of Navarre, Jeanne d'Albret who is the queen. Like, I mean, she's not the king's wife, she's the queen of a kingdom that is now in the southwest of France and a bit of the north of Spain. It does not exist anymore because, well, borders are fake. Um, her husband, who was definitely not the king, he was a Catholic and a Bourbon, the same Bourbon family as the kings of France. But he's a bit of a distant cousin. However... Jeanne, the queen, her mother was, at the time of our story, that's complicated, I know, She, her mother was the aunt of the current king. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So her son is second cousin with the king. That makes sense, right? Okay. Yes, they are absolutely all inbred. This is Europe, after all. Uh, so she really, really wants her son and heir, Henri, Henry, to be raised a Protestant in spite of his Catholic baptism as birth, because of course he was baptized Catholic. I don't know, this is weird, okay? I don't know, I wasn't there. And um, he's a prince of the blood. This is becoming relevant later, so bear with me. A prince of the blood is someone who can trace through the male line direct lineage to Louis IX, also known as Saint Louis of France, not Navarre. France. So his dad is the Bourbon, and he is a direct descendant of Louis IX through the male line, because this is France we are talking about. These things matter. Okay, that's a big deal. Uh, so Henry, however, is a Protestant, and he grows up to be the spearhead of the Protestants of France and Navarre, because, well, he is binational, although nations didn't actually exist. You didn't have a passport at the time, you know? So... Uh, fast forward to 1562. At that time, it is estimated that 10% of the 20 million French people have converted to Calvinism, and they are thus Huguenots. That's the word that you find in every single historical uh, text of the time. You may find Protestant, I suppose, but Huguenots is usually the word used, and that's what we call them to this day. 
Um, and they, so I will be using the two words interchangeably because my brain, you know, I'm already trying to think of these people in English. Like, this is hard. Okay. Uh, most of them are in the south and the center of what is now France, but, but there's pockets everywhere. Most importantly, and this is really important, most of them are important people. So aristocrats, nobles, and what we now would call bourgeois, which is not what they then called bourgeois. So a bourgeois today is a rich person with some influence, and they're not noble, okay? So probably they were merchants or artisans. The Catholics are not really keen on having to share space with who they consider heretics. They believe that that would ruin their afterlife. So... A few nasty things have been happening, but now, in 1562, they're turning to war. The Queen Mother and Regent, Catherine de Medicis, that is in English probably Catherine Medici, I suppose? I don't know. I'll call her Catherine de Medicis because that's all I know. Uh, she tries is to call... Is the same family as the Italian Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. They are completely Italian Medici. And they're quite oh. prominent in France, too. Yeah. Huh. I mean, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. They're the same Medici people family. Uh, so she is trying to cool things down because she's like, mm, is that even what we can call a civil war? No, we're calling that a religion war because that's literally what it is. And she is the queen regent at the time because her husband is dead and her child is too young. And so she edicts an edict, that's what it's called, that Protestants get essentially the same rights um, when it comes to cult as the Catholics. That does not include the Jews, because why would it? But at least, you know, the Protestants supposedly get the same rights by royal decree. So that should stop the wars, right? No, it does not. Because at the time of our event, which is 10 years later, there have been seven more wars. Yeah, well done, Catholics and Protestants being really peaceful to each other. Although... And I have to say, and I think this is quite important for the aftermath, the um, queen and a lot of people are like, we really don't want war here, so let us pacify people. And they try their best, literally. But to, uh, anyway, by 1572, hundreds if not thousands of people have been killed on both sides, and way more, like thousands of Huguenots have been jailed for being Huguenots and, and getting out of jail and probably back into jail and then out again, you know, as things go. So she's like, Catherine, my friend, the Medici lady, she's like, mm, we need to find a way to end this because this is really definitely not great, right? And she goes to her late husband's cousin, the Queen of Navarre. And she's like, hey, your son and heir, he's a Protestant, right? And how about he married my daughter, sister to the King of France and Catholic? You know, that should bring peace into people if a Protestant future king and a, a Catholic royal princess do marry, you know, unity, what not? But the... Uh, Queen of Navarre is like, eh, I don't know, I really want him to be a Protestant, and I know you want to make him a Catholic. I mean, that's what she thinks. So it mm. takes a lot of convincing, but eventually, yeah, we're going to marry them. And he's about to marry 
his second cousin, which is gross. But then, you know, um, as things happen, his mother passes away. And so Henri has to postpone his wedding by a few weeks so he could bury his mother and be crowned King Henry III of Navarre. And as of parallel, hello, you know when Cersei was like, I want to marry the prince, Rhaegar, and um, she's told by Maggie the Frog that she's going to marry not the prince, but the king. Here we are, except it's the one same guy. But anyway, <laughs> anything you want to say? No, just seems very, very calm. I'm sure this wedding mm. is going to go great. Yes. Um, I'm get, getting a lot of this whole... Like, uh, if I live too close to these people, my afterlife is going to get fucked. Yes. Gives me, like, Melisandre vibes somehow. Oh yes. oh, yes. I have not even mentioned that, but obviously, right? So, yeah. yeah the old kings and the new. Yeah. Ah. Well, this is fun. I'm sure this marriage alliance is going to go great. Oh. Uh, yeah, probably. So, uh... We are now in our event. I should probably say something about the name of this event. So we call it Saint-Barthélemy. I tried my best to say it in English, but oh man, ba Bartholomew, Bartholomew, it's hard to say. So Saint Bartholomew, because we are such a Catholic country, obviously not because we're secular, <coughs> um, that we uh, to this day have this calendar, like a calendar, our calendar has name of saints on each day, because if you're a Catholic mm. or from a Catholic country, mostly Catholic country, you would be aware that Catholics have saints, many, and each day goes to at least one saint, if not multiple. And at the time of, you know, the 1500s, you probably didn't always refer to dates as, you know, number and months, but most likely the saint's day, the feast day, if you want. So that's why to this day we call this event Saint Bartholomew, but because I at least didn't know when Saint Bartholomew was, I didn't know when it had happened. Turns out it's on the 24th of August. <laughs> the things you learn. So anyway, uh, we're not on the 24th yet, we're on the 18th. It's wedding day. So Henry III of Navarre has come to marry his cousin, Marguerite de Valois, sister of the king, Charles the Ninth. Uh, he has come a long way from the southwest of what is now France with a few hundred prominent Huguenots, noble and otherwise, uh, with him. Most of them, and yeah, European background here, they're really excited to go fight against Spain, which is at the time our uh, natural enemy. Yeah, the Kingdom of Spain in Kingdom of France usually had fight. You know, it's okay. We, we like them. But in Flanders, which is now like Belgium, the south of the Netherlands kind of thing, they're having a war there because the Spanish crown is ruling there. And the French Huguenots are like, yeah, I want to fight against these Spaniards. And so they came to Paris, which is on the way to Flanders for them, with all their weapons. That may be a thing. I don't know. And the king, anyway, has not even mentioned going to war in Flanders. So they're just like getting really excited on their own. Uh, another thing that's going to be relevant, they are wearing black because they're in mourning for the late 
Queen Jeanne, mother of now King Henry III. Um, so they're fairly easy to spot. And should I mention again that they have weapons? Okay. Oh, yes, and Paris, which is where they are, is an extremely Catholic city. There's a few Protestants here and there, but overall, it's a very fundamentally, and I mean fundamental, uh, Catholic city. And they're not really, really happy of having hundreds of harmed, armed, sorry, not harmed, they're not harmed yet. So hundreds of armed Huguenots around. And also, as opposed to what you were describing in Sweden, this is the end of summer. There's a heat wave, so it's real hot. And so things get super tense really quickly in the, at the time, largest city of Europe with 250,000 to 300,000 inhabitants. Yes, that was a large time. And there are only 300 guards. I don't know. I'm like, things are totally going to be under control, aren't they? It's obviously going well. So our, um, I don't know, main character, I like him, um, Henry, he's a Protestant and he's marrying in Notre Dame. So to make things not awkward at all, he couldn't be at his own wedding because yeah. a Protestant couldn't be inside the church during the sacraments. Uh, so he was literally outside Notre Dame during the most important parts of the wedding, as you do. So anyway, they're declared married and yay! Party time! And for a few days, it actually works. Like people are trying their best to be Catholics and Protestants in a celebratory mood or something together and not kill each other. And at some stage, which is fantastic, I discovered this during this research, the happy couple dresses up as Mars and Venus to show that opposites, opposites, I don't know, opposites can reconcile. That makes perfect sense, right? Uh, yeah, unity. This is all about unity and it's going to go very well. Huh. Questions? Uh, no, I'm sure this is going to go very well. And I'm also very glad that they're dressing as Mars and Venus because they had such a happy and healthy relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to marry their second cousin? Anyway, um, now we go uh, to two, four, I can't count, four days later. This is the 22nd of August. It's around 10 a.m. Someone I have not mentioned yet, the Admiral of the Coligny. Uh, choose how to say his name. So anyway, that guy, Coligny, let's call him that. He's an admiral, so you know he's part of the army and quite a big shot. Um, and he's also a big shot among the Huguenots. So anyway, he's coming out of Le Louvre, which you may know as a museum these days, but really just the royal castle, um, to go to his nearby house. After a game of the ancestor of tennis, I was extremely confused by the English name of the sport. So let's not confuse anyone and just go like, yeah, tennis. He is really happy and healthy. I don't know, he's doing his life with a few friends of his who are all Huguenots, when suddenly he is shot in the arm. Not cool. So fire weapons, already a thing at the time, you know. Uh, the people with him go straight to the house where the gun was fired, but they find it empty, which is a bit suspicious. Like, why would a house, a whole house, be empty? Anyway, mm -hmm. what comes quickly to the king, because he's literally a block away, and uh, the king is like, oh my god! He sends his surgeon to Coligny. 
And turns out Coligny has his left arm broken. No, no, no. His, whatever, one arm is broken and the hand on the opposite arm is really screwed. He has to get a finger amputated. Like, this is not cool. But the king is like, oh my God, let's maintain peace here. Uh, especially because, you know, the Protestants with him are like, this is clearly an attack at a Protestant because he's a Protestant. And so they're a bit pissed off. And they find out that this empty house, very suspiciously empty, belongs to someone close to the Guise family. I have not introduced them yet, so here they are. The Guise family is also very important in the French army and extremely Catholic. Like, they're the leaders of the zealous Catholic party. So it's looking like things are not going to go down well. The Protestants go ask the king, they go petition him uh, for justice. And according to them, that means that the Guise clan be punished. In spite of the absence of concrete evidence against them, like, okay, the people owning this house are in some sort of relationship with them, but it's not their house, right? And... uh well, the king is like, oh, shit. We have hundreds of Protestant chiefs ready for war in Flanders, in town, and only 300 guards to keep them contained. The good people of Paris, largely Catholic, well, you know, they're shitting their pants. And the king is like, what am I supposed to do? I obviously cannot punish the Guise because they're so important in the army and Catholic. And... Coligny is also important. So, you know, the king is like, what should I do? I have very angry, very armed Protestants, very scared, probably very angry, very hateful, definitely, Parisians. Are we going to war? And a few years earlier, twice already it has happened that the royal family be kind of kidnapped kind of thing. So they're like, oh my God, is this happening again? The Huguenots are going to take us hostage, or worse, you know, this time, like kill us or something. Or even, even worse, they're like, oh, what if the Huguenots went to attack the Guise family in their house across the river and cause a massive war in the streets? Everyone is real, real angry or scared, or both, and most people in the city who are not noble are just way too happy to finally have a chance to butcher some heretics. <laughs> so it smells really bad. And, you know, they take like a day and a half to think. And the following night, so the 23rd, uh, the royal council is convened. And the, <laughs> no one actually knows what happens because no one took down minutes, you know, at this meeting. But... Uh, a lot of people think things, whatever. What is sure is that the head of the guard leaves the room late at night with a list of 20 prominent Huguenots to kill. The idea of the royal family being that, you know, if we kill a few Huguenots, that's going to keep the other Huguenots quiet. And also the Paris uh, people will be happy that we killed some heretics. So foolproof plan, right? Yes, killing people will always make their allies happy. This is totally how it works. Um, so now we are... So, oh yes. So, I mean, we have a wedding. We have people going to die. And this is where even Tywin didn't dream of that. 
because things go terribly wrong. Are you ready? So, uh, the guard leaves the castle and they go to, you know, Coligny. He, he's recovering, but they're like, ah, oh, yeah, first kill, yes! And I have a list of things to do to him. So they killed him in bed, as you do, mm-hmm. then throw him out the window. Once he crashes on the ground, the head of the Guise family is like, yeah, supposedly he might have kicked him. This is weird, but why not? Um, then they throw him into the river, La Seine. Then, no, they're like, not enough. Pick him up again, emasculate him, put his genitals in his mouth, as you do, uh, <sighs> get one ear out, and his nose, uh, uh, behead him, obviously. And then they're like, oh, shit, we can't hang him anymore because we cut off his head. Therefore, they hang him by the feet at the um, gibbet, as you do. You know, this is going well. So he's screaming and all, right? Because, I mean, not necessarily him, but his household. Seems like he might have said uh, to the people of his family, like, hey, it's okay. Like, I'm going to die, but you'll be fine. Whatever. Very, very dignified person. Um, but the screams of his own death and other people's death around arouse the people out. And so some bourgeois, so what at the time means people who live in town, so Parisians, come out and they're like, hey, what's going on in the middle of the night? This is weird. And ask the guards, like, hey. And the guards tell them, oh, uh, we have a list now, we, we were told by royal decree to kill Protestants. And this gets misunderstood, probably because they really want to misunderstand it, as we were told by the king, it's fair game to kill all Protestants. Wait! Yes! Some people take that a bit too much to heart. So we go from a list of 20 prominent, like mostly, I mean, I guess they are all noble, uh, Protestants to kill to... Yeah, let's kill people! And we have a militia, which I should probably explain what it is. It's like regular like people from the city who uh, are armed. And they are used to keeping order, law and order, around uh, in their neighborhood. And they um, have been training for 10 years of war, you know, on how to arrest your Protestant neighbors. They know who is a Protestant everywhere around them. And they also know how to kill them, because why not? And mostly the Protestants who have been used to being arrested so often are used to being arrested by these guys. And so when they get woken up in the middle of the night, they don't think this is more suspicious than usual. They're like, okay, you're taking me to jail. Except this time they get, uh, you know, killed and thrown into the Seine River. And um, nearly all of them that are killed that night in Paris are also emasculated or have their breasts cut out. And in case of a pregnant woman, pregnant women in this case, because there's more than one, uh, their fetus is also cut out to be sure. And I think they actually meant it, that this is a great way to ensure the Protestants do not reproduce. Yes. As someone who studied gender studies and as someone who comes from a country with a history of eugenics, I have a lot of thoughts. As someone who is like, this is not how you make sure people don't reproduce because they're already dead. Um, I'm like, yeah, nice. Yes. uh, Anyway, don't worry. I also have a lot of thoughts. 
uh, don't kill people. That is bad. Anyway, um, now they're dead, desecrated as much as you can, and mostly by their own fucking neighbors. And diffuse in some stories. And it's bad. Like, obviously not all Catholics in Paris are super happy to kill Protestants, even if they're heretics, you know. But those who are happy to do it, there's not so many of them, actually. But, oh, are they happy to do it? So in the course of the night, 3,000 Protestants have been killed in the city of Paris. I repeat, 3,000 in one night, in one city. Yes. Oh, God. Uh, The city gates had been closed. I guess they are always closed at night anyway. I don't know. Good question. But there were guards to keep them closed and the militia to make sure no one moves uh, out of neighborhoods. And uh, the boom chains on the river were raised, you know, like when um, the black water uh, thing happens. Tyrion invents a boom chain. Well, we had boom chains, obviously, on the river. I don't know if everywhere, but in Paris, we definitely did. Like, this is standard. Except it's not standard to raise it when we're not at war. But they did. So you can't even run away on a boat. Um, Some Protestants did escape. And what they had to say was really interesting. They mostly had to say that when they were disguised as a peasant or something, a serving girl, they were hiding among Catholics who were rejoicing of the massacre of the Protestants in Paris. How nice. Lovely. Yes. Um, So, this was a nice little thingy. Oh, and, wait, 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 because there's more. So, we're at um, a very nice little number of 3,000 people killed in one night by, most of them were only killed by a group of 15 to 20 people. Yes. One very prominent motherfucker... I have notes on him. His name is Thomas Croisier. He lived by the river. Extremely convenient to throw people into the river mm-hmm. from your own house kind of thing. To the end of his very nice days, he was boasting of having killed 400 Protestants on the night, as you do. Oh, God. He was a goldsmith. But, like, not a super high fancy goldsmith. However, one of the people he killed was a... Very prominent, fancy goldsmith. Guess whose house he lived in to the end of his days? Yes. Um, And he was actually that guy. So he was not a prominent goldsmith. I mean, he was a goldsmith. Like, he probably was okay. But he was not one of the top ones. But he was very important as a Catholic because he was one of the guys who, I don't know, I don't know enough about Catholic English, but like he would carry the statue of the saint, if not saint herself, the, the holy patroness of Paris, Saint Geneviève. We like her; she's cool. Um, like he was a huge deal among the Catholics of Paris, like normal people, and um, he was one of the heads of the militia, of course. So you know, with him as a boss in your you know spare time militia job. Don't you feel like you're going to kill a few hundred people tonight and cut off their boobs and genitals? Him alone, like this guy, he's incredible. Um, Him and two others of his militia team are at the origin of half of 504 Protestants being put into jail in Paris 
between 1567 and 70. So in only three years, him and two of his buddies put nearly 300 people in jail. Like he was really trained. He knew what he was yeah. doing. And the Protestants seeing him of all people come to their house in the middle of the night were not like, oh, he's going to kill me. They're used to him putting him in jail. This yeah. is bad. Um, but, you know, that would be too easy if this was if this was all it's all about, because no, obviously, orders come out eventually in the coming few days to the rest of the kingdom to kill more Protestants. Oh, that's great. So, good news. A few cities outright refuse to do it, either because they're what would now be a mayor or um, local Catholic church people say like, no, we are not doing that. We've been doing pacification for like how many years now? We are not killing Protestants. But in other cities, it doesn't work that well. And 7,000 more people are called during what is also now referred to as the Saint-Barthélemy season. So it lasts on a few months. And uh, 3,000 people are killed in one night in Paris. 7,000 people are killed in the rest of the kingdom in the coming few weeks and like a couple of months. And there is not even a succession at stake here. I don't know. They're just killing each other for being Different, I suppose. But they're French too, like and their neighbors. Oh so yeah. I was like, oh Taiwin, you're such a, a little player. You have no idea what the real people can do. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um questions? No. Just <laughs> You're amazed, I, I understand. Good good job everyone. Good job with the killing. Super effective. Um Now I want to talk about the aftermath or consequences, because, you know, that kind of has to leave a mark on the country. Uh, First thing, I did mention that I like Henry III of Navarre, and the reason why is that he later became Henry IV of France. Yeah, that's a bit awkward when at your literal wedding, thousands of people have been killed because you're a Protestant. But then you become the king of extremely Catholic France. <sighs> talk about Egon the unlikely. Like, he's quite unlikely. Oh, we'll have to talk about that another day. Um, yeah. He, he did put an end to the wars, though, in 1598. There's a bit more killing to be done. Um, so he's trapped in Paris for two more years. He has to convert to Catholicism to save his butt and um, pretend to be a Catholic until he can fuck off back to his own kingdom uh, in 74 and be like, oh my God, oh my God, what just happened here? That's the thing. Now, uh, this little event, very nice, happened because of this royal council where we don't know who said what to do what. And this is going to be quite important, so bear with me. Yes, we did mention that one person in the story was not French because she was Italian. Catherine de Medicis, the Medici woman. So, and she's a woman. Did I mention she was a woman? So obviously she gets the blame, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, Tons and tons of people, and even in quite recent times, have been saying and writing that she is the one who ordered these 20 Protestants to be killed. Like, no one is saying that she wanted a full-on massacre, but... Uh, that she started it. Now, considering that she's also the one who broke up this marriage to keep things cool and had 10 years earlier 
uh, done this edict to give uh, like to keep things peaceful and give rights to Protestants. It seems a bit counter. Like, why would she do one thing and directly after that the opposite? Doesn't seem to make sense, right? Yeah. Uh, and anyway, a few days later, even that amazing, we have a king who is like, yeah, I, it's totally gonna be cool. So he declares the Charles the Ninth. Like no one remembers him except for that. He sucks. He's like, all right, people. He made a very official declaration that the massacred. Massacre happened because he wanted it too, you know, in spite of the scale of it having gone completely bonkers compared to what might have been expected by him if he did ask for things to be done uh, and his council. And he's like, yeah, because I am the king and I say what I want to say and what I want to say and what I want to see is law. And this, my friends, is the birth of absolutism. At the, 15, uh, at the beginning of the 1500s, a king being absolute becomes to be a thing, but that means that his own ruling supersedes other rulings. Like, he was, since the beginning of France as a kingdom, first among peers, among the other nobles. Uh, mm. But then in 1500-ish, he's like, no, but I'm a bit more first than just being first among peers. Okay? Okay. But by the end of the 1500s, he's like, you listen to me, you are nothing. If I want a massacre, I get a massacre. Thank you very much. Also, yeah, Catholic Church, forever. Thank you very much. Uh, and I thought this was definitely not the kind of, I don't know, if I were the king in his place, would I want to claim I wanted thousands of people killed after my sister's wedding and and claim it as a big, big victory for myself and my own power. Uh, I suppose we do not have the same view on things. But that was his. And, you know, this event, when you think about it, definitely changed the game because, you know, the 1600s come later. And with that... Not so long after this, actually, we have Henry, uh, not at all, Louis XIV, who is also known as the Sun King. So there wouldn't be a Sun King without Charles IX claiming to have wanted the massacre of thousands of people. <sighs> I tell you, Tywin would not dream of that kind of game. <sighs> what else? Did I miss something? Aswath Parallels. I don't know, we have people killing each other. There's a few. Um, did you see the Red Wedding happen? Because I did. And did you have something? Yeah, I think to me, one of the things is that like neighbor killing neighbor reminds me a lot of the Red Wedding because yeah. like people hanging out in the camps with people they think are their allies and like feasting and having a good time and then suddenly, boom, you're dead. <laughs> yeah. Yes, pretty much. Uh, oh, one thing I forgot to say, because obviously, uh, I had said earlier that Henry, then the third of Navarre, I mean, he will be third of Navarre forever. He, He's a prince of the blood in France, right? And yeah. that is basically the main reason why he doesn't get killed that night. Like, they seem to have actually hesitated, like, should we put him on the list? And they're like, well, I don't know. 
he kind of just married my sister. And also, Prince of the Blood. You don't kill a Prince of the Blood, do you? That looks bad. So, yeah, isn't that amazing? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, you mentioned desecration of bodies and being thrown into the river. Like, hi, you want desecration of bodies being thrown into a river? I think that the war in the... Oh, salt... I'm blanking. Salt pan? Yeah, yeah. That place where there's, you know, a lot of people being desecrated and thrown into well, the river, the sea, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that we, we have that here. We have quite a few as well atrocities thrown into one. Um, I don't know, because we we overachiever, you know, that's that's who we are in France. Um that sacred council also really reminds me of the Green Council during the Dance of the Dragons. Yeah. Especially with the Queen Mother being killed for being blamed for stuff. Yeah. Like obviously it's the fault of the woman. Couldn't be the dudes doing stuff. Of course not. And this one being not only a woman, but also a foreigner, like Yeah. You know. Uh, I mean, in all of this absolutely horrifying uh, event that obviously everyone in France is at least aware of. Like maybe maybe you don't know what day of the month it is because you just know the saint day, but we all know this thing happened, right? Uh, I just want to mention how this was actually quite civilized compared to the Red Wedding because no one was killed at the wedding. Yeah. Yeah, you know? But after the wedding, which, which is fine. Venus and Mars had already had their little show like, yeah, it all went well. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, a big Edmure vibes because he also does get um, held hostage of yeah. the phrase. Well, yeah, our little Henry III of Navarre is um, held hostage for two whole years. How nice. But they never had a child that James could um, threaten to throw on the trebuchet because... They never had a child with Margot. This is sad. No, it's fun. For whenever we talk about them again, because we will, of course, because he's quite an important king in French history, um, when he does become king of France. Uh, And so he didn't have any trauma, I'm sure. (laughs) It was fun. No, no, of course not. So that was me. And uh, I'm quite happy we finally did this first episode with this extremely light first topic. Very little analysis. Yeah, just, just a couple thousand people being killed. You know. Treachery, desecration of bodies. Fun Greed, stuff. faith. <sighs> no, it was good. I am really happy we... You suggested this theme for the first episode. And I was like, oh yeah, this is the best idea. Because, yeah, we want our listeners to feel like uh, we're just friends here having a little normal SWF chat. Not talking yeah. about SWF much, but you know, this is nice. Yeah. So we we have a whole list of things we're gonna do. Like we yeah. maybe some queens parallels yeah. to a SWF queens. Maybe some culture, some language, some colonialism. Yes. You know, stuff some we cats. like or we like you know cats. hate. But yes, cats. We need yes, a cat ha- episode is happening. We've discussed. Oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. That's like the most important episode. Yes. Uh, so we're excited. We will be having guests, you know, starting soon. We don't know how often exactly this uh, podcast is going to be released because 
we are busy people with a job and we're doing it out of loving sharing these things. And I don't know, this is cool. We have a great community and we just want to contribute more to it than we have so far. And we hope that you like it because we're not just doing it for ourselves. We are hoping to, you know, get people into it. And uh, if you have questions, you can write to us. I don't know our social media handles right now because we don't have them, but we will soon. However, we do have an email. Yes. Yes. It's Ragman's Pod because we're called the Ragman's Harbor and Harbor is too tricky to spell. So Ragman's Pod at gmail.com. Yeah, we... We talked about the name with some friends and I spelled it the British way because I usually spell things the British way and people were like, actually, it's spelled like this. And I'm like, I'm not, English is not my first language, don't come at me. Um, Yeah, no, definitely. And I've never lived, oh, that's not true. I did spend six months in Canada where they, no, they spell it with a U too. Anyway, so I've never lived in a country where they don't spell it with a U. And if Australia does not, I don't care. Um, Anyway, and so, hmm. (laughs) Ragman's pod, it's great. Yeah. Anything else? We absolutely want to thank our wonderful friend, Little Wolfbird who volunteered, because she's great, to edit this podcast because she believes it is an important project. And I'm like, oh my God, someone believes in us. And we love her just for that. And also because thanks to her, we do sound good. Yeah, that is hopefully. beautiful. Hopefully. And she's a brilliant sound engineer. And if you have a podcast or a similar project, please get in contact with her to make you sound good because she's great and she's a lovely person oh yeah absolutely she's amazing um both professionally and as a person and i'm so lucky that i got to meet her at uh, ice and fire con and she gives the best hugs she also has a very cute dog and several cute cats which is very important extremely important um and lo you do have a cat too right i do have a cat her name is totiki and I I think a lot of our friends know this, but the name Totiki comes from the Moomin books by Tove Jansson. And the character Totiki is inspired by Tove Jansson's partner, Totiki Pitele. So it's like, and I, I know people can't gender finish names. So like Totiki Pitele was a woman, Tove Jansson also a woman. They were in love. This was way before that was in any way accepted by society. Uh, but they were in love and had a great life. And Tove named one of her characters after her partner. And therefore I named my cat after the character. Because queerness and childhood nostalgia. Because the Moomin books are children's books that I read growing up. Oh, And I love Tutiki the cat. She's yes. beautiful. She's sweet. She loves you. I love her. <laughs> She might make an appearance sometime on the podcast, but apparently you haven't heard her meowing in the background. So we'll see. Okay, we should maybe wrap this up. Uh, thank you everyone for listening to the first episode. Uh, we were really happy to record this and uh, we'll get back to you someday in the future. <laughs> <laughs> we can't wait. Bye.
Bye bye. We did it.